surgery podcast i am your host gregory akata and with me as always is my dear friend and co-host sassy how are you doing hey greg i'm doing well how are you i am fine thank you frcs is out the way and Yay. my life has returned to me and i've had a chance to catch up with some friends anyway back to today today is one of the highlights of your year as a leadership fellow oh of today, my life of course it is. T- today is the most excited I have seen you in however many months I've known you. Hey. Uh, today is the day that I cannot rip you down from the ceiling because you are totally outside your mind with what's coming on today. So normally I do this, but today I will let you introduce the guests. Oh, so you've got two amazing ladies on the podcast today. Um, they are both two giants of global pediatric surgery, and we are so honored to have them here. We have Professor Kukila Laku, and we have Naomi Wright as well. Hi guys, do you wanna say hello to the guests? Hello everyone, it's a great pleasure to be on this podcast. Hi, wonderful to be here. Thank you for this opportunity. Pleasure to have you both. Um, So we normally start the podcast by getting to know our guests um, a little bit better. Um, As said in our pre-meet, I have been the only adult surgeon in this virtual room. I am excited to learn about all you do, but I'm also excited to learn about you both as individuals. So Naomi, first of all, to the rest of the surgical world uh, who are not necessarily pediatric surgeons or have a particular interest in global surgery, who is Naomi Wright? Wonderful. Well, um, I'm a pediatric surgery registrar. Um, I've been training now since 2012, um, but I've wanted to be a pediatric surgeon pretty much my whole life. Um, How did I get into global surgery? Well, um, although I didn't think it at the time, I think it's because of sort of influence of my family. My grandfather was a plastic surgeon and went to work in Sudan when my mother was growing up and my uncle was born there. And so, you know, I got informed about the story throughout my life. So I guess that sort of influenced it to some respect but um, really it was when I was a teenager I got involved in helping raise money for a charity in the Gambia that sort of spurred my passion to become a doctor and then at medical school I got to do an intercalated BSc in international health where I went and worked in that hospital in the Gambia and did my research there Uh, and then I've just really seized every opportunity along the way to get involved in in global surgery work so it's my passion. Excellent. Uh, We will come back to that in a little bit more detail later on. I think you single-handedly put most of us registrars to shame when we look through your CV and also recognize that you are a mother, but we'll come to that later. Professor Leho, who would you say you are to those of us that have never met? So um, I think firstly we need to define what's global surgery. And uh, I've struggled with it for a long, long time because uh, there's lots of avenues people give to it. It's like uh, providing sharing or providing uh, 
kind of uh, uh, education or doing things for people or going abroad and uh, making things better, helping others, uh, curing things where there are diseases in systems, health systems. And after meeting a lot of people and being involved in people that, that label this global surgery, my definition of global surgery is getting equity in healthcare for all in the world. And how do you get equity? Is by collaboration, working together, exchanging ideas, and not having a one-way stream from the HIC to the LMICs or uh, just remaining in an LMIC and trying to work through systems. Uh, it's sharing, sharing and getting equity along the way and doing it for the right reasons. Very eloquently put. So I gather you trained in South Africa. Yes, so I've lived it. I mean, if my background is, I come from a little hamlet in South Africa uh, called Bethel, and some people okay. are, will, will recognize it, but it's a very, it was a very small conservative town in South Africa during the old system in South Africa. So everything that you didn't wish for as a person that looks like me was happening in this town. So the community was very, very conservative and most girls got married off by the age of 16 because uh, amongst people of color, there wasn't opportunities in the Hamlet, though there were schools, but they were restricted to a certain race group. So it was difficult for families to then send the children off for higher education or even senior school. So the boys got the opportunity because it was thought that boys would be able to take this further. Girls got married off because of the mindset during that time. So uh, my family uh, were different. My grandmother was a self-taught health was worker who helped people in the community because going to the doctor was very expensive. So she knew how to deliver babies. She knew how to set uh, sprains. She could recognize fractures. And she worked with a local doctor to help around the community. And when it came to time when I finished junior school, my family decided that I will be going to get senior school education. And uh, there were no boarding schools or schools in the cities that would take on uh, people that looked like me. So we had to find a family that would take lodges. And uh, that was a starting point for a lot of the girls in my uh, hamlet where my parents organized somebody to look after us. And soon we were girls going off to finish senior school. And then the same kind of bridge or um, blockage came about when it was time to go to university. And uh, because I had experience with my grandmother, I wanted to do medicine. And one of the things in, in, in uh, low-income countries were that the only thing that people of color could train in in South Africa were either accounting, law, or medicine. Engineering and anything else was barred for us. So we didn't have that opportunity to look for the arts or engineering or anything else. And again, uh, in South Africa, there were seven medical schools of which at that time, one was for black students only. And to get to a white university, you needed uh, permission from the ministers to say that uh, you will be tolerated in a white university. And my family was too proud 
and so myself, we were not going to do that. So I went to University of uh, Natal Durban, Black Medical School, and it was wonderful what we learned there and how we worked together. And then similarly finishing off, I had to work at Baraguanath Hospital, which was the Black Hospital. I started my surgical training there and was barred from the medical school hospitals because they were white. And Baraguanath was the only Black hospital that we could train at. But um, it was really good because we you know, put our thoughts together. We had uh, our people, a few senior people, surgery was almost, oh, it was a no-no for, for black people, but even a bigger no-no for black women. So um, my, I kind of trained, I did my primaries and I did my FRCS in Edinburgh in England, which was the turning point, was the only time that they recognized that I will be a surgical trainee. Oh. And um, so, and then the next is history. <laughs> yeah, it's always incredibly fascinating when we hear some of the stories that underpin some of our guests. And I think, you know, listening to some of those challenges and, and also thinking that even today, some of those still exist is mind blowing. But thank you for sharing that. Interesting to hear. Uh, Naomi, I'll come to you next. I, I feel like I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, what is it about global surgery and pediatric surgery? that fuels your passion? Clearly you've been at this since you were nine or earlier. <laughs> what is it about it that, that ticks every box for you? Well, firstly, I love children. I just have an affiliation for children. I love playing with them, being around them. I'm just happy to surround my life with kids. Um, and so I always knew I wanted to work with children. But I, I, I love doing stuff with my hands. I'm quite practical. So, um, so for instance, uh, our A-level, I did alongside the sciences and maths because I love art so much. And so surgery sort of just made sense for me. It would, I got to use my sort of dexterity and tactile skills as well. And so paediatric surgery was obviously the combination of those two. Um, and then, well... In terms of working in other countries, particularly low and middle income countries, mostly Africa, um, why, well, I mentioned before why I've sort of maybe thought about that, but I think I'm just really passionate that every newborn, every child in the world deserves the same care, deserves the same quality of life, the same access to healthcare and anything I can do to try and work with colleagues around the world to achieve that is my passion. Ceci had promised that I would get this level of inspiration and enthusiasm from you both and she's clearly not uh, lied about that. Um, other question for, for you both. Um, again, I know the answer to this, but I'm a trier. God loves one of us. Alternative career. If you weren't a pediatric surgeon at Kekila, what would you do? I don't think I would do anything else. <laughs> <laughs> so I will I give so. you my starting point because when I was at medical school, uh, our department of uh, OBS and Gynae was very well organized. And it was the department that had the large number of um, people that came from poorer background that were in the leading positions of uh, you know, doing a lot of work. 
So I really got attracted. And when I started my house job at Baraguana, that's what I wanted to do. But then I realized that it wasn't the Obs and Gaini that I liked. I actually liked the theater work. And uh, in South Africa, after you do your house job, you, when you take on a surgical career, then you do two years of uh, surgical rotation as an SHO. So one year is general surgery, and the other year is you get a taster of all the different uh, specialities. And I chose pediatric surgery and just loved it. So I've always wanted to be a surgeon, but which type of surgery I was going to do came in my SHO year when I just felt I've landed on my feet. This is what I want to do. It just excites me. And up to now, I just love the pediatric surgery theater. I mean, even if it's a hernia and if it's a neonate, I mean, neonatal work is my passion. That's the ultimate for me. So even at this stage, having done surgery for so many years, if I get into theater and there's a neonate, even if it's an abscess or if it's a hernia, I, I just feel like electricity. So... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I feel that. And what the audience can't see, because uh, this is obviously a podcast, is Ceci's eyes are lighting up. She is nodding ferociously. <laughs> and when we were talking about colorectal surgery, that was sort of me. And now here she is in her element. And Naomi, go on, surprise me. Tell me there is anything else in the world that is not pediatric surgery that you could see yourself doing if pediatric surgery was not a thing. No. <laughs> but I was just thinking hard then because, no, I, I mean, yeah, I was thinking, okay. could I be a pediatrician? No, I love operating too much. I love the practical side of it too much. Could I be an adult surgeon that does pediatric sort of work? No, because I love the neonates, as Professor <laughs> Lecou mentioned. I mean, the neonates are my passion and those congenital anomalies and sort of, having to solve problems and come up with challenges around how to manage these complex anomalies in different settings is just fascinating. So I'm afraid not. I'll stick to this one, please. Worth, worth a try. Worth a try. <laughs> right, in, in one sentence, what is your biggest inspiration, Kakila? Biggest inspiration, as I said, is to be there in theatre looking at this near-dying neonate and bringing them back to life. Always said, you know, the neonates are so kind to the surgeons that, uh, you know, when they are good, they just recover so quickly. Um, they don't complain. Uh, they, they treat us with respect. They tell us immediately if they're unwell. So it's, it's a very nice interaction. You get told straight away, I'm not well, do something now, otherwise I'll die. So really good communication. You That's know. a lot of pressure. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's, it's um, what I would say, silent communication. Yeah. And you as a pediatric surgeon need to read that communication on this baby by just watching them. Okay. So uh, uh, the way they recover, it's very exhilarating. And when they are unwell, you know. Yeah. you know and you've got to act fair enough i'll i'll take that yes naomi so for those of us who are adult surgeons 
What's the one tip you would give me the next time I go to a four-year-old who I'm trying to get to engage with me clearly without the experience that you all have? I always speak to children like they're a little person rather than a child, you know. You can so often sort of speak to the parents and then overlook communicating with the child. So I always, first and foremost, when I approach a bed, is introduce myself to the child in a friendly way before or at the same time as the parents. So they feel very much incorporated in the conversation and they're there as well. And a nice smile, I think, always helps. And it may be sometimes a little bit of a joke. I look at what they're wearing and say some funny comment about the the toy or the the character that's on their t-shirt. It obviously helps having a seven-year-old because I can uh, (laughs) relate to the the characters that (laughs) they're holding (laughs) and on their t-shirt. That is where I'm going wrong. I do not have a seven-year-old, but I remember that (laughs) when I do have one. But you don't need one, Greg. I know. You, you, you make eye contact, you sit down, make eye contact at that level. And uh, in time, you get to know them. Right. This has been absolutely fascinating getting to know a bit more about the pair of you. As Greg says, I am currently on the ceiling of my house and someone is going to have to come and get me down because I am so excited. Now, um, if we just move into the meat of things, so the work that you ladies are doing, because I think it'd be really important for our viewers to know a little bit more about global pediatric surgery, what you've done, and also just get to know a bit about how they can learn more or maybe even be involved, because I, I think it really is a collaborative effort. We can all do our little bits in our own little ways. So if I go to you first, Naomi, I'd be interested to know a little bit more about the research projects that you have recently been involved in, um, in particular, the Global Surge Research Collaboration and Surge Africa. So why don't you give us an overview of those? Brilliant. Yeah. So uh, I started with the Surge Africa Research Collaboration. Um, really, this stemmed from the Lancet Commission in Global Surgery, um, which Andy Leather was involved as one of the co-chairs of that at the King Centre for Global Health. Uh, I've had the wonderful opportunity to work with him for quite a few years now. Um, So once that um, Lancet Commission had been published, saying that 5 billion people in the world don't have access to safe surgery when needed, people around the world started, and particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, started to produce national surgical plans for the first time to try and exponentially scale up access care in lower middle income countries. I think at that time we just recognised there's not much data on children's surgical outcomes from sub-Saharan Africa. And, you know, collectively we were were getting concerned that because of that children might not be included as much as they should be within these national surgical plans being produced and we didn't have as much data as we wanted to be able to advocate for them to be included in those surgical plans so um, the thought was how are we going to generate that large volume widespread data from across sub-saharan africa 
in a really timely manner um, so we can get it out there as quickly as possible and start advocating um, as much as we can. Um, so really inspired by the work done by Global Surge, where they collected data across the globe on uh, abdominal surgical outcomes, using a similar sort of model, we um, developed a research collaboration of children's surgical care providers across sub-Saharan Africa and um, chose a selection of common uh, pediatric surgical conditions from the neonatal period up to 16 years and looked at the outcomes of those and also what care they'd received um, and what factors affected mortality to see how um, those outcomes could be improved. One thing that really stood out from that was that the majority of the deaths in the cohort were in neonates and most, mostly in those with the congenital anomalies. For example, gastroschisis, you know, where the baby's for those that aren't pediatric surgeons, where the baby's born with their intestines uh, on the outside, um, the mortality was 76% across sub-Saharan Africa, compared to less than 4% in high-income countries. And looking at the sort of wider body of literature on congenital anomalies, it's recently been noted that congenital anomalies or birth defects are the fifth leading cause of death in children under five across the world, and yet there's so little data on these conditions, particularly from low and middle income countries, particularly conditions involving the gastrointestinal tract. So that's where Global Ped Surge was born. It's that we developed and expanded that collaboration of children's surgical care providers around the whole world. And we've just finished our first study looking at the outcomes of seven gastrointestinal congenital anomalies across the world. And it showed similar huge disparities. So um, gastroschisis, 1% uh, mortality in high-income countries, 90% mortality in low-income countries across the world. And similar for esophageal atresia, congenital diaphragmatic hernia, intestinal atresia. And so at the moment, we're just in the process of finishing writing that up. In fact, should be finished tomorrow uh, to share with the writing committee of which uh, Kokila Luku is a, a member of the writing committee and the, the steering committee and has very much influenced and steered the research and, and, and helped lead that. Um, so we should be submitting that for publication shortly, which is very exciting for us all. Well, thank you so much for that overview. That's absolutely amazing. And I think um, Naomi's being extremely modest. Um, all you need to do is put a not admitting that I've done it. Well, I, maybe I have done it. A quick Google you search on her. It. I have, I have done it. If you do a quick <laughs> Google search on her, you see so many presentations and so many meetings that she's been to and presented this important work. In fact, um, fun fact, she may not remember me, but I met her in Nigeria, which is my native country at the Pan-African Association of Pediatric Surgeons meetings some few years ago. And I remember thinking, who is this person? Why am I not more like her? But she is an absolute inspiration to those of us at trainee level. Um, so moving on, um, Professor Laku, um, again, another absolute inspiration. It's very difficult to pick which one of your many projects to ask you about. So why don't I just ask you generally to say what your um, research interests and activities, if you can summarize them in, 
in some sort of way because I know you're very widely published and very much a force to be reckoned with in the pediatric global surgery world so why don't you try and summarize your research projects for us I think what I'll do is just come through um, uh, you know how I've collaborated with uh, a country in in Africa and how that build up into research so very early in 2001, uh, the vice chancellor of a university from Tanzania uh, wanted to develop specialism to avoid children being then sent to India or South Africa for their work. There were lack of pediatric surgeons. In fact, there were none. There were adult surgeons doing a bit of pediatric surgery and trying to make do with that. So on arrival, um, I found that, okay, if we were going to develop pediatric surgery, how would it be the easiest way of doing it? So we did a fact-finding mission, went on a trip to see the pace, meet the people. And I came back uh, and at that time I had an eight month old daughter and, <laughs> and a two year old and uh, married and just a job in, you know, full-time clinical job, NHS job in Oxford. So how am I going to do it? So I gave it thought process and felt that the best way forward was to avoid, uh, you know, causing any difficulties within the department. I used two weeks of my annual leave, self-funded myself, had a permission and a discussion and agreement from my family, my husband, to say, right, this is important, it should be done, and started working with adult surgeons in taking an interest in children and working with them year in, year out, over 20 years now, we have uh, now 12 uh, individuals who are doing children's surgery, of which seven are doing pure pediatric surgery only. We have four established units now in Tanzania doing pediatric surgery. Two of them have got uh, theaters from Kids OR, so have theaters that are solely for children. And through that, uh, you know, during that time, it wasn't just doing the working with surgical teams. We took a team, team building with uh, trainees, with nursing staff, whatever was required, whatever was the ask is the one what that I delivered. And then we developed uh, training programs, uh, developed a master's program, and at every level stimulated uh, my colleagues to start writing things up. So over the years, we've had more than 50 presentations at uh, you know, international meetings, locally driven, about 25 publications with Tanzanians as first authors. Um, and now we've reached a stage where we have a fully funded researcher from the public health sector who's working with pediatric surgeons uh, at Muhimbili Hospital uh, developing projects. So the current projects that we're running, they are looking at uh, post-operative wound infection as a multi, uh, as a randomized control trial. We're looking at uh, access to safe surgery and how much it costs for parents to come all the way to a surgical center and uh, looking at uh, a perioperative booklet. And I think that's quite interesting in that the WHO you know, checklist that we do was just not the right thing for 
the children's services in Tanzania. And that was the ask from my colleagues to say, look, we need to do something different. So we looked at what they had there and we felt that uh, together with the anesthetists, the nursing staff, the porters uh, and myself, we uh, decided that um, maybe we should have a perioperative booklet. So the journey of the child from the time they leave the ward till the time that they come back to the ward. So that's in progress where the nursing staff wrote their bit from the ward. They need the, the porters wrote about the journey. The um, uh, operating uh, department uh, anesthetic staff wrote about from the time they collect the child and go into theater. Then the theater areas and the safety checks regarding that. And then going to the recovery room and then returning back to the ward. So we have a medical student from uh, Oxford who kind of assisted, but was not the key player. And lots of local staff, medical students locally, uh, and the entire team that's involved in this journey. So that is in progress. COVID has kind of uh, retarded the progress of that, but it's picked up again. And hopefully by March, we will have the perioperative booklet ready. And once it works in the kids or our theaters, uh, kids award will be very, uh, they are interested, they know this is happening, and they're very interested to see what the booklet looks like, to then provide it as a template for other users of their theatre to use the same progress. It's amazing how some of the things that we take for granted uh, these days in terms of our usual practice here um, will be significant uh, game changers in some of these low and middle income countries. So hats off to you guys and what you're doing. Yeah, I would second that. Um, I think also what I really admired and what I heard a lot from you, Professor Laku, is how you can get so many members of the team involved. And the impression I get from a lot of low and middle income countries is they sometimes don't have that sense of hierarchy. Everyone's just trying to pull together to do their very best. And um, I'm also impressed that you're even getting medical students involved because they really are the next generation. Now, because I'm a, as women, I know we don't tend to blow our own horns as well as the men. Greg, I'm looking at uh, you. Slow down, slow down. <laughs> um, but let's do a little quick fire. And Naomi, I'm coming to you. How many hats do you wear, both leadership, management, research, and otherwise? Too many. <laughs> 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 well, yeah, no, well, I think you, you, you already mentioned most of them. I'm a mum. A surgical trainee and I'm a researcher and occasional teacher on the master's course and a partner to my husband. Well, in that order? And, oh yes, I should probably change the order and daughter to my mother who I care for. Well, that's absolutely amazing and another sort of General question, just to get people to know you a bit better. What has been your proudest professional moment and why? Wow. Probably, oh, I don't know. Probably when I got my training number for paediatric surgery. <laughs> that was my most exciting moment. But the thing is, <laughs> I was doing um, 
upper GI, no, I was doing HPV surgery at that time. And I'd been looking all day, waiting for the email to see if I'd got on or not. And I, I glanced at my phone and I sort of got the chance to read the top line, which said something along the lines of me being accepted. But then I was called in to do Whipples, assist with the Whipples, that took about six hours. And the whole time I was like, I don't know if I've definitely got it or not. And I, I couldn't be quite excited. So I was trying to get through this operation quickly to get out. But yeah, I'd probably, I mean, that and... Uh, in terms of my global work, um, well, hopefully most of the things I'll be most proud of are still to come. But um, getting getting the Royal College Research Fellowship and the, the Wellcome Trust Fellowship to be able to do the research I'm doing at the moment. Um, but the proudest moments will probably be when those are complete and we can publish them and share them, particularly well, Peed Surge Africa, Global Peed Surge, and the Gastroschisis project that I'm doing at the moment. Well, probably the Gastroschisis project because it's really making an impact and changing outcomes on the ground. Um, yeah. Well, I'm glad you said about the Royal College of Surgeons of England and the Wellcome Trust, because I was trying to tease that out of you. Um, and if you hadn't said it, I would have just blown your horn a little bit for you. Um, so very well done. Uh, can I put the same questions to you, please, Professor Lecou, your proudest professional moment and why? Okay, it's going to come from a very different angle from where I'm coming from. So a training in South Africa, they, um, I happened to be the first uh, female and female of color uh, to become a pediatric surgeon. And my proudest moment was um, uh, in, in a situation where a family from a farming background, uh, from a very conservative background, didn't see or could see people that looked like me in a professional basis because everybody that looked like me was either a street sweeper or a cook or uh, you know somebody in in the uh, kind of non-professional sector and i did a pyloric stenosis on their baby and initially they were resistant they were not sure whether i was able or capable because this is very new to them. And it was just at the time of the changes in South Africa. But um, I was, uh, I spoke the language, I spoke Afrikaans and I explained to them who I am and I'm able and I'm the most senior trainee on the ground and this is the operation I do. And out of a lot of, there were a lot of background noises and lots of um, difficulties in them understanding what was actually happening here. And there were anxieties among nursing staff and anxieties among colleagues as to what was going to happen and whether there was going to be uproar because, uh, you know, it is a country and era where people can pull a gun out and say, look, you're not going to do, touch my child, set up. But I did go ahead with the operation and luckily <laughs> I was sweating when I did the operation. I didn't want to have anything go wrong. Luckily the baby did very well. And uh, at the point of follow-up, they brought me a basket full of vegetables from their farm. 
and for them, uh, so it, it's when a community that has never seen this accepts you as a professional, it was the proudest moment for me. That's absolutely amazing. And as a female surgeon of color, um, while my training has primarily been in the UK, I know they, there are very many difficulties that we sometimes face and even just as females. So to have people like you kind of making a way for those of us coming behind is inspirational. But can I use this in this moment to make an, a plug, if you will, and I'm not ashamed. I happened upon a textbook, Pediatric Surgery, a comprehensive textbook for Africa, which I believe you are one of the authors of, Professor Lacou. So I think that's absolutely amazing. Um, you have co-authored it with one of my other mentors, Dr. Umwome. So that is very amazing that. So I just want to use that as a shameless plug to the podcast. People should pick up that book. It's amazing. Could I just mention something about that book? The, yes. the most important thing is when we put it together, myself and Emmanuel uh, uh, Ame talking about it, and we felt that we wanted a very good balanced book because there was no pediatric surgery textbook that covered uh, the low-income country sector in, in a comprehensive way. So the way we did it is for every chapter, there was a high income country and a low and middle income country author, and it was paired for the clinical and the relevance and also helping with the writing. And we did 120 chapters in that book, and it's now been um, uh, coming into second edition by Springer, and I'm sure it will be out uh, in the early parts of next year. And the same process that we followed through, but this time Springer has taken on the public publishing. Great. I think um, just speaks to the inspirational figures you both are, uh, just showing that whatever you put your mind to, um, very little can get in the way of that. So again, hats off to you both. Uh, Naomi, um, clearly you're involved in a lot of global pediatric surgery collaborative work. Um, for listeners out there who might want to get involved in either your work or just global ped surgery in general, what would your top tips be or, or how can people get involved? This is your chance to shamelessly plug away. <laughs> I'll shamelessly plug Professor Lacou's project that's currently ongoing. <laughs> She'll get her chance as well. <laughs> COVID Pete Surge Cancer Study, which is currently ongoing, uh, which is the active project in terms of research. But I think generally um, there's lots of um, pediatric surgical and general surgical collaborative research projects that are ongoing out there. They're a great way to sort of start getting involved in research, starting to learn about global surgery. I think um, many of those research projects have started to have uh, research training fellowships, capacity building uh, fellowships alongside the main study. So for Global Ped Surge, we ran a um, two-year research training fellowship program and academic mentorship scheme. And uh, I know that uh, Professor Lacou is doing a similar sort of training scheme uh, alongside COVID peds cancer study. So that's a good way of starting to do your own local research project alongside the collaborating in the big projects. Um, I think going along to journal clubs, there's lots of global surgery um, 
journal clubs that you can attend, especially nowadays we're all doing everything online, but uh, we used to have the um, global surgery sort of tripartite journal club between Oxford, um, Edinburgh and, no, sorry, Aberdeen and King's, but that's just expanded to everywhere on the internet these days, you know, now we do everything via Zoom. So journal clubs, um, it, then if you want to sort of do something in a bit more depth, probably consider doing a master's. There's various master's courses around. I did the master's in global health with global surgery at King's, which I thought was particularly fantastic because it's got a whole module that's focused on global surgery. I believe Professor Lacou is starting a similar master's in Oxford. Um, there's short courses you can do in global paediatric surgery in, in Oxford as well. And um, so th there's lots to get involved in. And then obviously, if you want to take it further, you do a PhD like I'm doing at the moment, which is, a, is more in depth. Um, so it depends how, whether you want to dabble in it or dedicate your life to it, but there's lots of different options. Thanks, that's incredibly useful advice. Professor Lacou, there's been a lot of pointing at you and, and uh, <laughs> highlighting all the work you're doing. So tell us a little bit about your COVID pediatric cancer study and all of the other interesting projects out there or how those that are not necessarily involved in it at the moment can potentially get involved. Okay. So I'll start off by saying that uh, Naomi has actually championed global surgery among trainees in the UK and stimulated a lot coming from a trainee. So that has been really good for pediatric surgery because there was a drive coming from the trainee group. Um, you mentioned uh, COVID PEDS uh, cancer studies. So the whole process started with um, a globe search from Birmingham, a very dynamic group that uh, were doing cancer work. And I kind of approached them to say, why don't you add children to it? But very after about three months, it became quite clear that children's cancer work is very different from adult cancer work in that it needs a high, a very hard multidisciplinary team. And a lot of children's surgery takes on a lot of chemotherapy work and the surgical aspect is limited as compared to adults. So we decided that it's not gonna work under that umbrella. And so children were moved out. And my discussion with the team in Birmingham is they said, look, if you wish to do it, uh, you know, go ahead, but we can't embrace it in this, this group. So, uh, so I took it on and it's amazing that without any funding, within three weeks, with just knowing people around, we're able to establish almost 100 countries a uh, thousand hospitals and uh, now within kind of six months we've got over a thousand cases recorded uh, in in that and it was purely from knowing people word of mouth uh, engaging with people collaborating with people on different platforms uh, and I've been very actively involved in the Pan-African Pediatric Surgery Association which uh, Naomi mentioned which is a pediatric surgical group in Africa I was there when the whole PAPSA was started in 1994. I was at that meeting. And then, uh, you know, when uh, uh, the Lancet Commission took place in 2015, they left children out. So together with 
uh, colleagues, we put together the Global Initiative for Children's Surgery, which is basically looking at children's surgical needs on a global level. So having worked with different people, working with universities in South Africa, in Tanzania, in Bangladesh, people kind of were very happy to collaborate. So, so far in uh, many of the projects that I have been involved, the focus has always been LMIC and that has been the key. So that's the big one that's happening at the moment. Uh, we are going to start one on trauma which will be more limited to a region rather than global. Uh, we've been looking at uh, hemoglobin levels in uh, surgical cases in children, where we just noticed that a lot of uh, children's surgery gets canceled on the day because it looks like the children look pale. So we've done a three-phase study. We've completed two stages. One is the systematic review, which got published in The Lancet. The second one is the work in progress looking at retrospective hemoglobins on which patients were operated on. And we're just starting the third phase of prospective operating with hemoglobin checked on hemocues. So that's just an example of what we're doing in Bangladesh. And then there's the one that I mentioned in Tanzania. And then there's a lot of platforms that people can get involved in. Like I find uh, the concept of Oxplore has really taken off. So Oxplore started where medical students in Oxford have been going to different countries for the electives. So at that time, Cat Ford was my registrar. And I said, why don't we ask these medical students to form a partnership with their counterparts in the countries that they're going to with a project? So we gave them a project looking at children's uh, abdominal tumors and uh, this is now exploded <laughs> in that uh, our first phase study had won a few prizes because of the concept, just, just the concept. Then the phase one study um, got published and got reviews in different areas. And we've on to phase two, uh, which has uh, taken off very uh, effectively in the UK and the phase two B part is going to LMICs, and the phase three is uh, work in progress. It's incredible how, as the outsider, listening into what you know, you both and your collective groups have been up to, I said a number of times already, it's, it's inspiring, and I am tremendously amazed at how you have time to do anything else, really, but breathe and, and do what you do. So thank you very much for your time, and thank you for sharing some of that with us uh, and some of your experiences. I know how desperate Ceci is to, to tell you how much she's enjoyed this. So I'll leave Ceci to bring this to a close, but it's been my pleasure listening to you both. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. Um, as I say, Greg is going to have to come and peel me off the ceiling because I'm on cloud nine. Thank you for sharing your knowledge, your wisdom, your amazing stories and I'm sure all our listeners were very very privileged and would be so excited to learn more about all the different avenues that you've pointed them to. Um, also um, for our medical student listeners um, you've probably heard so many ways you can get involved and come over to pediatric surgery don't do adults because it's rubbish sorry Greg. Steady do whatever you're inspired to do. 
Um, so guys, um, thank you so much um, to Professor Laku and Naomi Wright for giving up your time. Um, we will catch you all on the next episode. If you have any questions or comments, the, webs the email address still is comms at rcsed, which is C-O-M-M-S at rcsed for you to send us your thoughts and we will catch you in the next episode. So until then, stay well and Greg, any final thoughts? Be kind to each other. <laughs> Bye Thank everybody. You.